0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 25 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and today we're going to talk about some of the cool new things that Apple announced this week at WWDC. And to do that, I have a very special guest who actually is on site right now in San Jose, and he's also the creator of NS Screencast. It's Ben Sherman. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, it's great to be here. So you've been uh, for the last couple of days in San Jose at uh, AltConf, and I also believe you did a talk at Nextdoor, right?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, sort of competing events. Uh, There's a whole lot to do here and a lot of stuff vying for your attention. And I I try to stay focused on the dub dub content, uh, but there's just so many people to meet and so many great things to do uh, this week here. Uh, And there's also Layers, which is a big, you know, design-focused conference uh, that's going on right now. And so uh, when I come here, you know, without a ticket, uh, you can still go to AltConf and watch the keynote in the State of the Union. And I was also invited to go to Nextdoor to uh, be on a panel
0: and uh, give a talk about Bezier paths. So that was fun. Awesome. Yeah, I love Bezier paths. You know, like, programmatic drawing is... So underrated, I feel like. like it's something that you can use for so many cool things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, cool. So uh, what's the vibe been like in San Jose? You mentioned like there's a lot of different events, and I think that's really cool. And it's also really awesome that Apple have been embracing some of these events more and more and realized that, you know, like you say, the week is not only about WWDC. I mean, that's the main focus, but you've got so many other things going on as well. So what's the vibe been like these past couple of days in San Jose? Yeah,
1: you're right. It's really about the community. It's yeah, there's a whole lot of like you know new code to write and new you know new betas to install on your devices and all that. But it's really it's really like the singular moment for this community to come together in one place. Um, and last year I wasn't here, so this is my first year in San Jose. Um, San Francisco certainly has a different vibe to it. This the city doesn't really sleep. Um, you know, San Jose is kind of uh, dead at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I've heard. Uh, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's not hard to find a restaurant reservation. And pretty much everybody you run into on the street is here for the conference. And uh, really, it's more about the people than being in a in a cool city. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that said, San Jose is cool enough. It's just a totally different vibe. It It's kind of funny. They have... Um, and I don't know how new this is, but they have these motorized scooters, these electric scooters that you can rent. Uh-huh. And so uh, you you can just open up an app on your phone. It costs, you know, a dollar for the first minute and then I think 15 cents per minute after that. So it's insanely cheap. And you can just rent an electric scooter and blaze down the, the road at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, it's just kind of funny. And you, I've been noticing more and more attendees because yeah, they're easy to spot. They're usually wearing the uh, the dub dub jacket. Oh, right, uh, yeah. And uh, blazing around the city, and it's, it's pretty funny. I haven't yet attempted
0: that. Yeah, that sounds sounds really crazy. It's it's funny because I was, was at WWDC in 2014, and even in a large city like San Francisco, it's really like all the attendees kind of descend upon the town, right? And it becomes the conference for one week. And I can imagine in a smaller city like San, uh, San Jose, uh, that's even more true. And now we've also got so many more community events as well. So I can imagine you spot people, you know, with Apple watches and jackets like everywhere. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. And it's it's really cool because you've people come up to you that follow you on Twitter or whatever. They recognize you from somewhere. And, uh, and it's really... It's really awesome because it, it's like when else would you have a, the chance to meet uh, people like this? Yeah. And there's also lines for various events. Uh, so, for instance, I went to the uh, the, a, the live taping of ATP. Oh, and, nice. Uh, there was a super long line for that. And uh, so, you know, you're waiting in line for a while. And I uh, had a great discussion with another developer from Texas, and he was telling me about his – his app and some of the things he was working on and and then he was he was telling me that he's having a really hard time finding a designer for his icon because he doesn't he doesn't like his icon and (laughs) then i was like oh well i had you know a designer friend of mine uh help me with an icon for my mac app i was like maybe he could help you out and so i introduced them and i yeah i think that's gonna work out and so it's just these serendipitous moments that you can't plan like when you're booking your travel for wwdc it's it's pretty expensive you know, the whole conference uh, week and everything can be pretty expensive. Uh, but but I always have to remind myself that there's these sort of um, hard to plan, hard to anticipate uh, moments that are really worthwhile.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and you're going to make friendships that last for a really long time. There are a lot of social aspects of it, but there's also professional networking and, and, you know, and we haven't even gotten into any of the SDK stuff in the announcements. So it's, it's just like, a, it's a very interesting week.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. That's what it's all about. And that's why I also personally go to so many conferences. It's not necessarily that I go with the, you know, mission of networking, but it's, you know, meeting developers, talking to people, uh, talking to people, experiencing the same kind of challenges that you have, and, you know, hearing about different kind of solutions, and just, you know, hanging around and talking about Xcode. It's uh It's such a nice experience, and especially uh, for WWDC week, that is especially true because it's so much larger than many of the other events. Right. Cool. So uh, when you're not at WWDC or at AltConf and all these cool things, you are running NS Screencast, which is a really awesome video series uh, that people can subscribe to. So you've been doing that for quite a while, haven't you?
1: Yeah. So I started NS Screencast in 2012 um it was more of a uh, like why doesn't this exist and i kept complaining to my friends like somebody should create this and one day somebody was like ben that should be you <laughs> and yeah. and i was like you know i i probably could do this and I, I one of my philosophies about blogging and and training and teaching and stuff like that is that it you don't necessarily have to be an expert because if somebody is following in your footsteps so to speak in terms of their experience and just having somebody who's done what you're trying to do before and show it to you with sort of an enthusiastic uh, <laughs> an enthusiastic uh, way, it's, it's handy. And so I, I initially felt sort of like imposter syndrome trying to do this r- right when I started iOS. I had been doing it for like a year. Um, well, no, that's not true. I was probably two years at that time, but I still felt like a beginner. Um, and and then, I, you know, so I started uh, recording videos, and people started to like them, and it grew pretty fast. It was, you know, on Hacker News and sort of blew up for a moment. And, um, and so it was just something that I sort of obviously needed to keep doing. Uh, there, was, there was enough interest in it. And uh, so that became a nights and weekends thing while I worked at a regular job. And I worked at that job for five years. And then um, in 2015, I left that job to, to go independent and NS Screencast became my primary focus, um, and so it is a uh, it is a really humbling experience when I'm walking around town here with an NS Greencast shirt on, and people from all over the world are just randomly come up to me and, and wave and stuff. And it's not something that I'm uh, used to. It's it, like I said, it's really humbling.
0: It doesn't happen every day on the streets of Texas. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, so anyway, the I really uh, enjoy the fact that just people of all uh, walks of life, all experience levels, people that I look up to um, have have nice things to say about it, and and so it keeps me going. Um, yeah. And in addition to NS Screencast, I also do some uh, consulting and some client work, and so I sort of intermix. Um, uh, I also do Rails development as well. So there's some some Rails and some iOS um, on the side and uh, recording a lot of screencasts.
0: Nice, that's an awesome mix. I totally agree with you. I really love that you said that part where you said that you don't have to be an expert. And this is something that I try to really stress whenever I tell people about kind of what the journey that I've been on and continue being on where you know I've started sharing more and more things and now with this podcast, with my blog, etc. And it's really important I think to keep that in mind that you don't have to share things only when they are like revolutionary or when you are an expert in that field and you know every single detail about it. These kind of, like you also mentioned, these kind of um, videos or blog posts that are about, you know, hey, hey, I started learning this new API and this is kind of the, the problems I ran into as a beginner. For example, I love now reading uh, blog post about people learning about machine learning. And even though they're not like machine learning experts and have a PhD in it, uh, they bring me so much value because I'm on the same path as they were back then.
1: Right, right. And and honestly, the expert opinion often forgets what being a beginner was like. Right. And so you may not even introduce it in a way that is even approachable. And yeah. so I've, I've always just felt like, you know, I'm going to do it in the way that I wish that I could have seen a month ago or mm-hmm. whatever. yeah, and, and I find that um, there are plenty of people who resonate with that model.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a great way to kind of document your own thoughts about something and kind of reflect on what you've been learning. If you've been spending like a month learning something new, like a new technology or technique, uh, just finishing that learning process off with a blog post or a video or podcast or what, what have you is I think a great way to kind of summarize it all up for yourself and create like a little nice... Uh, artifact of the things that you've learned.
1: Yeah, I was at, uh, James Dempsey gave a talk at NextdoorConf yesterday that was uh, about extracting your build settings from Xcode into um, into separate XC config files that you then manage. Right. And and you do that because it makes it a lot easier for source control and merging and you know maybe providing a comment of why you made a setting this way or whatever. And I was asking all these questions um, about the about that process of like, how do you manage that on a bigger project? And, and then, um, then I remembered that I recorded two screencasts on these build settings, uh, back in 2015. And, (laughs) and then I was like, oh yeah, I did do this. And I went back and looked at my own notes and it's something that I do a lot because I think I have a terrible memory. Uh, but when I go back and, you know, you probably had the same uh, experience where you're like searching for something and you come across your own blog post or your own post on Stack Overflow. (laughs) many times. (laughs) it's, it's pretty hilarious how that Yeah, works. it is
0: really hilarious. Yeah, but it's like, you know, you can write for many people, but one person that you're probably always going to write for is yourself in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the primary reason why you should write good code, because it's going to be you debugging it later. Exactly. Cool. And uh, on that topic, like learning and sharing what you're learning, you also have started a new project called App Dev Diary. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what are you doing with that project?
1: Yeah, so I, I sort of belong to this uh, interesting intersection of, of of the community who is also a musician, and I find there's a whole lot of developers in this community that you know play guitar or play bass or you know some instrument, and uh, and so I've been doing a podcast called Vibrato FM for a while with uh, mm-hmm. my friend Daniel Pasco, and that's purely about guitar, and uh, it happens to have like a large dev audience, which is kind of interesting, but I had the the inkling to. To make an app with um, sort of outside the domain that I normally work in. You know, I do a lot of stuff that talks to a network and has like a, you know, a database or whatever. And so, um, you know, just sort of doing something that's that's out of my comfort zone. And um, I, I need something to sort of help encourage me to practice scales on the guitar. And so I wanted something kind of like... Um, you know, like Duolingo or other language learning tools will, will have um, a way to sort of retest things that you once proved that you knew.
0: Right, like repetition.
1: Yeah, the repetition and sort of like we're going to go through these this, this sort of path of learning and then we're going to step a couple steps back and make sure you still know it. Um, and so I wanted something like that uh, to, to show you scales on the guitar and uh, show them on the fretboard and actually play the notes at a given tempo and then you play along with it. These are. This is a whole lot of things that I uh, don't even know how to do, which is kind of the funny part. Uh, and yeah. so I, the the joke I like to make is that I'm like that dog scientist photo who was sitting in front of all the beakers and wearing a lab coat, and it's <laughs> like the, the caption is "I have no idea what I'm doing." <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I teamed up with my friend Joe Chiplinski um, because he's also a musician and a designer, and uh, and so he's going to do the design for this app. And uh, we decided to sit down and, like, let's just record the whole journey and so people can kind of see how the sausage is made and what, what decisions we've made and what we're working on next and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I got a good response from it. A whole lot of people uh, are really interested in it, keep sending me ideas on how I might tackle the, the problem of, for instance, uh, uh, synchronizing sound with animation all uh, oh, right, yeah, and how to give generate tones of a given note and things like that, you know using a software guitar instrument and
0: yeah, nice, that's super cool, yeah, it's like it's always awesome when you can connect more with like both like the audience of the app but also other developers who might have you know input like you say and have ideas like how to solve problems because then it's it just becomes so much more fun that you you have this like extended. Uh, experience kind of building this app is not just you and Xcode uh, with Joe as the designer. Like you're you're building it together with the community in a sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Awesome. So um, let's now go ahead and dive into our main topics. And of course, what we want to talk about is all the cool new things, or not all of them because we won't have time to talk about everything, (laughs) but but, uh, we want to talk about some kind of key things that were announced at WWDC. And we don't want to focus too much on kind of the user-facing features. We'll talk about some of them, but mostly we want to focus on kind of the things that were introduced that we think are going to impact us the most as developers and kind of what we think uh where we might be able to build with some of these cool new things um but first off uh i think it was a very interesting opening of the keynote at wwdc where uh, pretty much the first thing they talked about when they started talking about ios was how they focused a lot on performance improvements and really like making under the hood changes making things more smooth and this is something that I feel also is really helpful for us as developers. So, what was kind of your reaction, Ben, when you heard about this? Like that 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 was going to be the main focus of of this year? Like really, these more refinements and improvements.
1: Uh, I couldn't be happier for this. I I really think that you know, I, sort of the general uh, consensus from some of the people I heard was some grumbling of like, oh, that's this is not enough and you know, it, there weren't that many headlining features, and I think that's a good thing. I really do. Um, the fact that you can take this, uh, the same uh, version of iOS and bring it all the way back to, what was it the iPhone 6? Yeah, something um, like that. And I mean, I I have an iPhone 6, and it's really slow. It's unusable on iOS 11. And so uh, I brought my iPhone 7 as my test device to use with the beta and i installed ios 12 on it and it's lightning fast and that's unreal for beta yeah absolutely beta is usually it's like there's all this promising new features and all this cool stuff you want to try but beta one is generally super slow and horrible for your battery and i think that because the focus of this release you know because they mentioned it as like the headlining thing uh i think this was probably a singular focus for this release uh is you know do, doing more with the devices we have and uh, which means that the fast devices you know the iPhone 10s and whatever comes next are are just going to be that much faster
0: yeah absolutely it's always a good thing when you focus on kind of your lowest target and when you make these kind of performance improvements for those because that will always almost always, uh, also make really big changes and make things more smooth for the high-end devices as well. Because even though something might not, you know, be dropping frames and be laggy on an iPhone X, uh, you know, it still consumes more battery in case, like, the, op- uh, the implementation is not fully optimized. So making sure that it runs smoothly on older devices, I think, is a, is a really, really good thing. Yeah, there's also these uh, these
1: uh, sort of like in the happy path, it will it will work fine. Yeah. But then when it when you like uh, set up a new phone and it's like doing face recognition in the background and machine learning for the places of your photos and and Siri suggestions and it's like doing all the kinds of work and your phone gets hot and it drops twenty percent of battery and you're like, what are you doing? I don't yeah. Even, what is going l- on? There's no UI for any of this. So right. all you feel is that your phone is like clearly doing something and then you try to do something else and now you're competing for these system resources. And so I think that this attention to performance uh, is important. Um, I, I recently saw a Twitter rant and I'm going to paraphrase it because I'll get it wrong, but it was by Gary Bernhardt and he was talking about how computers, as they get faster, we just stuff them full of more and more software. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. things are, are not getting faster for us. They're not feeling a lot faster. Uh, and so there's, there's a whole lot of, uh, there's a whole lot of software out there it just has so much in it that the hardware has a hard time keeping up. And so we keep making these advances and then we just like fill that gap with, you know, it's kind of like, uh, well, maybe this is a bad analogy to make with somebody who doesn't live here, but the the American <laughs> debt problem, like I just get a raise and now I'm going to go and I'm going to go like buy something to now uh, <laughs> make my lifestyle fill that new uh, amount of money that I have.
0: Yeah, I think we do the same thing in Europe as well. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's like this this
1: thing that I think that no, it would be nice if it was just faster. Or uh, and we don't necessarily need to fill it with fill that uh, space with something because uh, I you know I have an iMac Pro at home and uh, it's kind of nice when it's just sitting there silent, just waiting to do just to burst into something, uh, so, you know, some piece of work that it can do. But I yeah. don't want it to be like humming along all the time. It just seems like such a waste of resources.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And iOS has definitely been moving more in those directions in recent years with things like, you know, background activity, you've got like silent push notifications where your app can wake up in the background and do things like that. And all of those things are really nice from a kind of a user perspective because you your phone, if it's like in a good state and if it's a modern phone, uh, it makes this kind of impression that the phone is always ready. It's always up to date, like the content is already loaded, but of mm-hmm. course, all of these things like running on background threads all the time, it also, you know, it has a pretty big performance envelope and especially on older devices with slower, uh, CPUs, you've got older batteries and things like that. We've seen that in the past, you know, six months that there's been a lot of talk about that and how that really becomes a problem. And one thing that I like about this is that there's been so many times where, you know, I've gotten a bug report, for example, from one of my clients. And it's, you know, this part of the app is slow on like an iPhone five or an iPhone six or something like that. And then I start looking into it. I open instruments, I debug it. And then eventually I realize that if I just put an empty UI table view controller here, it's going to have the same problem. right? So the problem is that kind of iOS has kind of, you know, um, run past that target and becomes so sophisticated that the older phones can't really catch up anymore
1: yeah and i think this is in large part probably the largest part about it i mean actually they probably mentioned this in the keynote that their singular focus is the consumer and everything goes outward from that and so this is certainly for the people who are like oh i don't want to install the beta because i don't want it to slow down my phone that is a real thing that uh you know I call them normals, like people who don't pay attention to the, the keynote and stuff like that. Uh, that's a real concern for a whole lot of people. Uh, you know, they, they addressed the disk space issue from years past, years past where <laughs> nobody could update because they didn't have enough free space on their device, Yeah, uh, which was a combination of, you know, slimming down the updates and uh, making phones with larger storage. You know, so that they have made uh, progress in this area, and I think this is, this is certainly aimed at... Uh, allowing people or giving people better experience uh, on a device that's a couple years old.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it really helps for us too, because as the the user base kind of moves forward at a rapid pace that Apple has been really, really good at with iOS, like making sure that a lot of people install the latest version, uh, you know, it really helps for us as well to be able to maintain that nice, like the current minus one iOS version target. All right, cool. Another really, really interesting thing that we saw uh, in the keynote was these new features that Siri has gained in terms of shortcuts. And this is something that comes from the workflow acquisition that happened like a year ago, where there seems to be like a whole lot of new automation features in iOS and that we can also hook into as developers, which I think is really, really exciting. So what do you think about these new shortcuts and uh, this ability to be able to construct these workflows as a user? So there's, there's sort of two things that I
1: feel like are... Perhaps overloaded and they're they're confusing. I think this is going to be confusing to consumers as well, yeah. um, and maybe once we dig into it, we will realize they're all the same thing. But there's the Siri shortcuts and the shortcuts app. It's really described two totally different things, right? There's mm-hmm. the the old workflow app is now the shortcuts app, which I think is going to be delivered separately as a, as an app store download. Yeah, and and so that will be something that pro users would probably find in the app store, and and so. That being called shortcuts and the fact that you can add a Siri shortcut from it, sort of any app that supports this uh, does seem a little bit odd, but maybe it's when you sort of step back and look at the bigger picture, they're all just like snippets of voice commands that uh, launch stuff on your on your phone.
0: Yeah, my understanding of it is that you basically use the same as user activity API that Apple has been building a ton of features around in the past couple of years, like spotlight indexing. Uh, you've got the new class work, uh, class kit framework that was introduced in March, uses the same API as well. You know, mm-hmm. a bunch of different things. Handoff is, is uh, Hand-off, built yeah. yeah, built on the same thing. Um, so my understanding is you implement that and you basically set a couple of flags on that user activity. And that way Siri can kind of see that and that way it can both hook into the shortcuts app and also to be invoked using these uh, voice command shortcuts. I might, might have that wrong. You know, it's still very early days, right. but that's, that's my understanding of it.
1: That is my understanding as well. And, and what was not clear in the keynote, I, I talked to somebody yesterday who went to this session and uh, and they were saying that one of the things I was wondering about is like, okay, let's say I wanted to say play X from Netflix. Yeah. Can I get X as a variable in my application? And the what I heard from this gentleman was, yes, you can. Yeah, it seems and like so it. So I don't know the mechanics of how that works yet, but that seems like that um, opens up a huge door for all kinds of, of apps. Um, I'm a little hesitant to, like, you know, declare success on the, on the part <laughs> of Siri because they really are just playing catch up at this point. Yeah. Um, and I think that if they if done right then you know this could boost sales of the HomePod for instance. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Where, where like one of the the headlining features of this device is the sort of like annoying assistant that doesn't do what you want. <laughs> and if it can sort of gain new <laughs> behaviors that the community can provide then that's a good thing for that's a good thing for the whole ecosystem.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and this has been a you know really big feature quest in general, you know, from people, uh, both developers and users, to be able to add more functionality, especially from third-party apps to Siri. And what I l- really like about this is it feels like Apple has taken a little bit of a step back in terms of just trying to make Siri like super intelligent and great at parsing all these different sentences and intents, and instead said you know what we're going to do? We're just going to enable you to add like a keyword. And then you can just say that keyword. You don't need to parse like, you know, need, do I need an umbrella to mean the weather? You know, it's like more like just a mapping between a voice command and an action. And I think that that's probably going to be a lot more reliable as well.
1: Yeah, I think that it's it's a tough problem to solve because at the, at the basic level, a long time ago, they could have just handed us a giant string. Yeah. And then you're on your own for parsing it. And uh, I, I don't know at anything about how Alexa skills work, but they've had the ability for you to tie in really deeply for a long time. And that ecosystem seems to be, again, from the outside, I don't even use uh, an Echo, but it, it seems to be a lot richer in terms of like the developer ecosystem around providing uh, uh, skills for, for an Amazon Echo. Yeah. Uh, for, for Siri, I think that they were very careful at designing a system that would be scalable and provide a good experience. And unfortunately, we were sort of stuck with those three intents from last year that were very narrowly focused and not applicable to most applications. And so now that it's opening up a bit, I think that they probably learned quite a bit in the past year and, and, you know, perhaps that the API is going to be better for it.
0: Yeah. And one really, really key change here also is that at least from the demos, it seems like these things can all happen in the background. So if you're chaining multiple things together using different apps, uh, they can all just execute in the background. You don't need to jump between different apps using URL schemes anymore, which you know really, I think, can potentially make a really big impact in how iOS devices can be used for things like productivity and work uh, because you can chain these things together and they just execute at once. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I do have to wonder how approachable this the Shortcuts app is going to be to... Uh, to people, uh, the workflow app was insanely popular, but the only people I ever heard of that used it were were either developers themselves or part of the developer community. Uh, so I don't I don't know how widely adoptable these shortcut workflow things are going to be for for normal normal folks. But uh, it it is really kind of um, it's kind of cool seeing. Such a, like an upstart, uh, scrappy, you know, young company get bought by Apple and then a year later demoed on stage essentially as a as a first party app.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And I also love that they've taken the product and brought it in. They haven't just like taken the people and made them work on something completely different. Like it's actually bringing that, those features in-house and actually integrating them into the system, which was, you know... I think a lot of people really want it because these kind of automation things they become so much more powerful at the system level especially on an operating system like ios all right cool so like most keynotes ios was you know one of the primary focuses uh, of it but there was also a, kind of a sizable segment on watch os even though there's not a ton of things that have happened but there are two kind of key features i guess for us as developers and the first one is that we can now have these more interactive rich notifications that we can, you know, build build for so that users can take quick actions, which is what most people use their watch for, I guess. Right. I think
1: this is this is exactly what the watch needs. I I sort of joke around. I I have the uh, original Apple Watch, so it's a little slow. It dies at 10 p.m. <laughs> it's you know, and so I just I just sort of uh, grown accustomed to never launching anything on it. I don't do anything on my watch. I just—it's I, a passive, like information collector, basically. Yeah.
0: Notifications renderer.
1: Yeah, it'll ping a, ping you with a notification, and, and you know, I still have to pull out for my phone for most things, but um, you know, it, it's just this passive thing that is useful. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, you add this, this just little bit of additional functionality where you don't have to launch an entire application. You know, I, I think, I think that. I mean, I haven't even seen the app switcher, the, whatever they call the springboard on the watch. I've, I haven't seen that in over a year, I think. I just know. No, me neither. Yeah. And nah, so, me neither. so I think that this is, is exactly what the watch needs. And um, as a developer, if you support the watch or if you support, you know, if people get notifications for that, uh, I think this is a no brainer type of thing to just enable one touch actions for things that they would normally be able to do on their phone anyway. And so. Uh, you know, I like seeing the watches something like it's, it's an opportunity for somebody to not take their phone out of their pocket.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And now, I mean, we had before these kind of quick actions that you could take on a notification, but now they're so much more rich and you have, you know, the ability to show more content and things like that. And I see like all kinds of applications for that. I mean, even for me, I do some game development in my spare time. And if I'm working on like a turn-based strategy game, you know, you could actually show like the playing field and you could have some quick actions there that you could take directly on your watch, for example. Right. And those things weren't possible before. So there, it really opens up the door for many kinds of apps to just enable these really quick actions instead of, like you say, having to open up your phone. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was introduced was uh, something that a lot of people have been wishing for, especially people who work with kind of workout apps or audio apps, and the fact that we can now play background audio on the watch, which I guess wasn't added for battery concerns, but now is there. So that is really exciting that we can now actually start playback of audio in the background as a third party app.
1: Yeah, I think it, it brings up a lot of uh, possibilities that weren't possible before. Um, Marco Arment had a really great blog post about uh, the the sort of challenges with bringing Overcast, the podcast player, to the watch. And yeah. how you, you know, if, if you're just like handing off a URL to a system player, um, then it'll, you know, you could play pause, but you can't, there's a lot of things you can't do. Like for instance, how do you, you would have to wake up at some point, and sync the play position so that when you go back to the phone, they're at the same position. And if you're talking about a two hour podcast or whatever, which is not uncommon these days, yeah, uh, then it, you know it it just sort of destroys the experience. And so there's a lot of reasons why uh, podcasts on the watch weren't really uh, a thing that was going to be possible, um, at least at least not for a um, a certain use case, like the the majority use case. You could always like you know essentially sync podcasts to the watch and then play them, but they're essentially like separate audio files. And and so now, you know, Marco mentioned on his podcast that it's he said he felt like they just read his post and implemented everything he wanted, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> that's uh, perfect, yeah. Uh, in addition to that, you get volume, uh, volume control from within apps because... Oh, that's perfect. Uh, he was saying that if you have Overcast installed on the watch, then you actually get a worse experience because instead of showing the system uh audio playback screen on the watch, you get overcasts and overcasts can't let you change the volume.
0: Oh right. So it's better to see the now playing screen. Yeah, I remember that. Right.
1: So if you didn't have the watch app installed, it was a better experience and that's just bonkers. So Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that's that bizarre. The, this whole this whole thing has is uh sort of been addressed and I, I'm actually excited now because I'm in the market for a new watch and I'll probably get the you know the new one and and be able to take a run and listen to podcasts all with, while leaving my phone at home.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm really looking forward to that too. And I can't wait for Marco to get his hands on these new APIs and be able to bring Overcast because that's also my favorite podcast player uh, to the watch. Uh, because, you know... Also, it's not only about being able to play the audio, but to also be able to gain some amount of control, like you mentioned, like being able to show uh, uh, show the volume controls and for things like overcast, being able to implement things like smart speed and voice mm-hmm. boost, uh, you know, to actually have a real app there and not just, you know, an audio player just using the system playback because that's not really what these apps are about. Awesome. So uh, next up we have... Um, the Mac. And we also have the TV we also have TVOS in between, but I don't personally <laughs> feel like there was too many developer related news in there.
1: Uh, there is some new stuff that I need to watch the session because I'm one of the one of the few who has a TVOS app in the store. Oh, uh, you do. Yeah, the, I have an ScreenCast app in the in the oh, TVOS of course. store and it works great, yeah. but uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that I shipped it once and it's it works fine and I haven't had to to make too many changes to it. But um, it was interesting because uh, I, I met with uh, somebody for dinner the other night who was working on TVOS, so he's he's there at the conference, and uh, they do have a session. There was something about uh, focus uh, coming to, uh, quote, non-UI kit platforms, which I'm not really sure what that means anymore.
0: <laughs> hmm, yeah, uh, that's
1: interesting. And, uh, you know, the focus engine is like if you take the Siri remote and you have the, 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 t- the swipe touch bar, or what do they call it? Uh, the little touchpad thing on yeah. the remote. And uh, because it's not a pointing device like a Wii, for instance, you're not like pointing at the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no cursor. So it just goes by what thing has focus, and they make the focus uh, pretty obvious. And when you swipe down, for instance, uh, what it does under the hood is is it takes the rect of the thing that's currently focused, and it just like extrudes that rect and projects it downward until it finds another focusable thing and and you can find your you can like insert your own like, like hidden markers there if you want to redirect focus uh, somewhere else if so the sole focus system is actually kind of cleverly designed as a user i feel like it's super intuitive it work it just works
0: yeah it's a perfect match for the tv
1: yeah and as a developer sometimes uh, you would expect it to just work because it's kind of uh, that's how the end user experience is but in your own apps sometimes you have to give it a hint here or there And so that system uh, apparently is coming to whatever non UI kit uh, platforms means, because I don't even think you can consider the Mac a non UI kit platform anymore, which we'll get into (laughs) later. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, for sure. But, you know, what could that mean? It could potentially mean, I guess, that they're that they could bring a tvOS experience to the to the Mac.
0: Maybe I mean we had Front Row a few
1: years back, right?
0: Yeah. I so mean, maybe I, it's this is going to be the revival of Front Row. That would be cool. I just
1: I think it's like just because they can doesn't mean they should. I I would right. probably play around with it and see if it's interesting. Uh but that the only thing I could see that working for is you know having a touchpad on the on the Mac and being able to control a TVOS app that way and you know maybe that's something they're going to do. I don't know. Um, I, I have to watch the session for that, but it it did seem kind of funny that like there's all these heads of each department, and if somebody has something to say in the keynote, I feel like they have to like fight for their time, and it certainly felt like t- the TVOS thing was like uh, we have Dolby Atmos and. Uh, Nothing for developers that we can tell in the keynote anyway. So we'll we'll see.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I definitely don't mean to sound negative about it because I think TVOs is a really interesting platform, and I understand why they are spending so much time focusing on, like, the content because, I mean, that's what it's for, right? I mean, you your app that you mentioned is consuming video and so many other apps they're either games or video playback services pretty much Mm -hmm. so i totally understand why they're focusing on these the most Uh, but i I agree with you that the focus engine i think is a really interesting technology and one thing that i'm thinking about right now when we're talking about this is what if we could use the focus engine to uh, enable keyboard control on both on the mac and on ios like when you have a keyboard plugged in you could navigate using like a focus engine style api I think that could be pretty cool. Yeah, that is, that is certainly, uh, something that could be cool. It certainly has
1: an accessibility angle.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, next up, we want to talk about the Mac, but before we do, I want to take a very quick break and thank our next sponsor. And it's once again, my good friends at Bitrise. So during WWDC, we've heard about a lot of cool new APIs. We have a new version of Swift to adopt, and you probably also have some ideas on how you could improve your own app as well. But you know what's really important to add first before you start making all those changes? Continuous integration. And using Bitrise, you can do that super quickly. With Bitrise, you get access to a fast, powerful, and robust continuous integration service where you can easily build, test, and even distribute your app to your testers. One thing in particular that I personally love to use Bitrise for is UI tests. I love to selectively add UI tests throughout an app to make sure that all the key user interactions always remain working, even when my app is upgraded to a new version of the iOS SDK. And on Bitrise, UI tests run smoothly and just like continuous integration itself, they kind of act as a nice insurance policy for when you go ahead and make these kind of larger refactors and larger changes for when you're upgrading to a new version. And you know what? They already support Xcode 10. So you can start migrating right now with all the great testing features and everything ready to go. So here's what you can do. In the show notes, which you can find at swiftbisondellcom slash podcast slash 25. There's a link to sign up for Bitrise completely for free. And after that, if you want to run more builds and have more powerful options, they also have some really nice pricing tiers as well. So, I really recommend that you check them out. And when you do, make sure to use that link in the show notes because it'll tell Bitrise that you came from here, which really helps support me and my work. So, thank you so much to Bitrise for their continued support of Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue making this show possible. All right, so now let's talk about the Mac and Mac OS had more changes than usual. I would say, or at least like bigger changes. I mean, we've had changes in the past, a couple of releases with, you know, new features and mostly bringing kind of things from iOS back to the Mac. But this time we're seeing two really kind of big things. And the first thing is of course, dark mode, uh, now that we can run all, all of the apps that support it in a dark configuration, I think is really cool and. You're doing some Mac development as well. I know that you've been doing some live streams with our common friend Guy Rambo about right. building Mac apps. So, uh, how do you feel about this dark mode, and do you think it's going to be something that is going to be easy for developers to implement?
1: Um, it's that's such a hard question because it just really depends on how much custom stuff you do. I think Apple does a pretty good job of sort of giving you hints, like you should probably, you know, you, like to use the classic example, you should adopt Auto Layout. Yeah. And they kept saying that, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, new phone sizes, and your apps aren't going to look good and if they have hard-coded sizes. And so there, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And um, I must have missed this announcement, but I, I had no idea that you could put colors inside of an asset catalog.
0: Oh, right. that was and, last year.
1: And so, yeah, I just totally missed that. And that's the perfect example of, you know, like typically in my apps I'll have like a theme class that, yeah. uh, that i can apply colors to and if i wanted to do dark mode i'd just like raise a notification and look at the, the that uh themes colors and and apply those to controls and stuff like that and i it, being able to like have a first party way of doing that within interface builder is pretty cool because uh just like you have um some of the uh some of the like the trait selections like if you have a compact navigation bar you can use a different uh icon in the nav bar uh and same thing for for the tab bar and so in the asset catalog you can sort of say oh, this image is used for this and, and now you have that same capability saying oh well I'm just gonna like classify all my colors like this is my primary text color and this is my secondary text color and this is my logo color or tint color or whatever and uh and having dark mode variants of all those allows you to do it once and sort of see it everywhere. Yeah. Now that does mean that you can't you know like I think a lot of people just hard code colors all over the place. Right. And so um, and honestly This is like if you're using Interface Builder and you just like selected a color at random, then you're going to have a lot of work to do. Uh, If you've used these asset catalog colors, then it's going to be pretty easy. Uh, So I I, I think that there is it's just sort of like if you eat your vegetables, it'll be easy.
0: (laughs) You've done your homework. Yeah, I think also that if you and also on the Mac, it's it's more common, I would say in general, to just use the normal system controls because the user expectations are more that a Mac app should look like a Mac app. You know, it should it should have like the standard controls, the standard buttons, the standard uh, you know tab controls, etc. And on iOS, things are a bit different, where the expectations from users tends to be more that. The design should be custom, the design should be cool, the design should be innovative, et cetera. Right. Not from all users, of course, but you know, some people just like it to be boring and and predictable.
1: That is a great segue into the second into Marzipan.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, we're gonna talk about it in just a second, but I just feel like with dark mode that um, I feel like most Mac developers are following these conventions. Maybe they are hard coding colors here and there and fonts, etc. But uh, since most Mac apps are made up of you know, more a larger percentage of system controls, hopefully this transition will be simpler than if, let's say, iOS gained a dark mode.
1: I do think that iOS will probably implement a dark mode. Uh, I think one of the driving forces behind this, and it well, they did say it was a super highly requested feature. But I think there are people who work in certain environments where a bright white screen is distracting. Like if you're yeah. in a studio and it's dark lighting or whatever, it's just having something a little bit more subtle and muted uh, is easier on the eyes and less,
0: less uh, jarring. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think this is a perfect segue into Marzipan. And uh, this was really cool that Apple actually showed us this as a preview. And in retrospect, it's kind of obvious because it's not only because people would probably find out anyway, you know, by reverse engineering these things, uh, but also it's mm-hmm. kind of obvious when you look at these apps that they are in fact... Uh, UIKit apps running on the Mac. So the new feature is that next year, I guess, uh, we will have a third-party developer API for some somehow porting our iOS code into the Mac and being able to run iOS apps as Mac apps. And Apple are already this year doing it with some of their own first-party apps like News and things like that. So what's your reaction to this? UIKit on the Mac, who would have thought, right? Uh, I mean, we saw attempts like this before and they didn't
1: really pan out. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say if that was because there wasn't the engineering, you know, resources that Apple can provide behind it. But uh, a while back, and I don't remember the name of it, but Icon Factory came out with uh, something similar. I think it was called Chameleon. That was Chameleon. Chameleon. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it was it was a super interesting experiment. And I think that the, uh, the community highlighted a lot of things that are wrong with that approach. Um and and is that the right approach today maybe um i think that this so this um i i am really convinced that uh, that apple's worried about the whole electron thing yeah where you have these apps coming out that uh use a webkit essentially in javascript and uh, they they are in, an impressive set of apps they can do a lot and they're pretty fast unfortunately like going back to what we said earlier uh, they aren't necessarily respecting your machine's resources, and so it's not the mm-hmm. most efficient uh, the, the most efficient thing. And I'm a user of these apps. I use Atom as my text editor. I use Visual Studio Code sometimes. Right, yeah, me too. Uh, and I use Slack. And as much as I get annoyed by them from time to time, like most people do, um, I, I can't say that if I was an engineering manager having to develop a complex uh, product on three platforms or more, that I wouldn't choose the same thing. So I think that there's there's still going to be a drive for a long time for people to have like quote unquote one code base, which which is not true um, from what I understand. It's still it's still a pipe dream to have a single code base and run everywhere. You know. Yeah. But it's it's pretty close, and so um, I don't I don't know if I I I, I don't think this is gonna is, is going to for instance make Slack take Slack to. Uh, to the Mac with this new system, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I I think that because their their iOS app is native, I assume, but um and and so we'll see what happens. But I do think that this is like very um, clearly aimed at sort of thwarting that um, that whole model.
0: Yeah, I think Apple has also seen you know that they have this huge, huge group of developers, like this huge community around iOS. And there's new apps coming out all the time for iOS. And it's a really kind of vibrant platform. There's a lot of things going on. And then you have the Mac where there's not a ton of new things happening. I mean, every once in a while, we get like a great new Mac app. But, you know, when you go to a conference, for example, almost all the talks are focused on iOS. And, and uh, all the examples and codes, things you find online are almost always iOS specific. So this is also a big reason I feel where enabling us as developers to leverage some of those skills that we have with UI kit and actually more easily get something running on the Mac. And it's probably not never going to be like fool anyone or maybe fool some people, but if you look closely enough, you're probably always going to see that this was actually something that was brought over from iOS. You can definitely see it in Apple's uh, apps currently, Uh, but it's, a way to get something running at least, so you can get your app running, uh, you know, to actually have something on the Mac.
1: Yeah, so that's a good point that it, this is. There's a whole lot of iOS developers who could probably do somewhat minimal work to get their app on the Mac, and I, I think that that approach means you have a watered down experience. It's not going to feel Mac like. Um, sure, you can copy and paste text and stuff, um, and you know, maybe do drag and drop, but there's there's going to be things that are just flat out different. And yeah. Um, I think that that's going to be a little bit jarring uh, in terms of like the Mac experience. Um, there, there are certainly apps that I use that are just—they just seem like foreign aliens. Like Steam, for instance, it's just an awful. Right. App.
0: Yeah, it's a good example.
1: Yeah, it looks like a Windows app. Yeah, I might as well just. I wish they had a nice website that was better than the the app, but it's I right. can't install things and yeah, so it it's. Um, it's it's interesting because there's there is going to be the, the sort of like you're stepping into a different world uh, feeling for developers or for, sorry for end users um the the interesting thing that i think is that there's these paradigms on ios that literally have no real uh parallel on the mac like navigation stacked based uh like stack based navigation where you you know are like pushing a screen and it sort of animates over. There's not a whole lot of that anywhere on the Mac. Um, right? And so that having a back button is a little weird. I think for a lot of these apps, because of the screen real estate, uh, they would be sort of sidebar apps with like a master detail type of uh, configuration. And uh, I, I think that it's just it's just a little strange. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel about it yet. Um, but I do think that AppKit developers shouldn't be worried that if you want to make a first-class Mac app, that AppKit is almost certainly the 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 direction to go for the foreseeable future.
0: All right, so we're definitely going to talk a lot more about Marzipan and about getting iOS apps running on macOS as we see more and more things happening, and we see what Apple is using it for, and we learn more about these technologies. Uh, But for now, let's shift our focus a little bit and talk about some of the new features that we got in our developer tools. Um, We got new Xcode features, and we got some really interesting new logging capabilities. So we can start with with the logging capabilities first. Last year, Apple, they introduced this OS log API to... Uh, have kind of one logging API for all kinds of logs. And this year, they also introduced an OS signpost API. So what do you think about these, Ben? Do you currently use OS log, uh, or are you going to start adopting it and start adopting this new signpost API as well? Uh, I haven't used OS
1: log uh, since last summer. And last summer, it was, uh, I, I don't want to say horribly broken, but... It was not uh, – it didn't work well for me, and then I, I thought there was a whole lot of missing uh, information. And then I started to second-guess myself, like, oh, is this a Mac thing only? Uh, right. And it just because I I think there was some issue with Swift uh, usage. And again, this was, like, during the beta period last summer, and so I didn't look at it again. And, and unfortunately, I think that's a shame because this year they're like, yeah, you should be using it. And I agree. I would much like. I would much prefer to use like a, a faster logging system that I could filter and uh, hide the things that I don't want to see, and and uh, they don't have to be in my my shipped application. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I. So I do plan on digging into this. I would probably transition to OS log, you know, on my next project, uh, if if it works like it should. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'm really happy about this OS signpost thing. I think that. Getting more visibility into how like how an application works uh, is really important, especially if you're like coming across an application that you like you would join an existing team and you're working on an application that you don't understand yet. Uh, there are a whole lot of things that applications do. The whole life cycle is is complex. and you would probably need it like you know pen and paper, you go through all the different paths that take to get to the point where you're you're looking at. Um I think that once an app reaches a certain size, you can sort of no longer fit that in your head at one time. And so having this OS signpost thing, I think it's really um important for giving richer information to to instruments so that you can sort of diagnose like what's going on. This doesn't necessarily have to mean there's a performance problem. You may just want to know how many network requests am I making and uh you know, how long do they take? And so um, I forget the exact terminology, but there's these new custom instruments plugins, or are they just called custom instruments that you can add? Yeah, I
0: think so. Yeah, like you just add, you build your own instruments. I think that's what they call it.
1: And and I think that's also really interesting because, you know, you you want to do things like, um, you know, identify core data queries. And you, like, there's a whole lot of things that are sort of invisible to the to the user when you're working through your app, and if you if if you make them visible through print debugging or you know print logging, then you will get just a wall of text that sometimes mm-hmm. is hard to see the forest for the trees. So this provides some you know uh, richer information at a higher level from a different perspective about the inner workings of your application. And I think that you know more visibility, more perspectives on how applications are actually behaving, uh, will lead to better applications. It'll be easier to find and fix bugs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the big advantage of this signpost API is that you can, well, play signposts. You can say, now I'm entering this body of work and now I'm exiting this body of work. And you can see information like what thread you're running on and you can get timestamps and you can debug latency issues, things like that. And I think that could be really, really useful because there are so many times where you get like some kind of race condition or you get something that is hard to reproduce. And being able to see those signposts and being able to see like, what part of the code base am I entering and leaving and what does kind of the stack trace look like from that point of view, I think could be really, really valuable. Yeah. All right. Another cool feature in terms of developer tools is when it comes to testing, I'm really happy to see that Apple is focusing more on testing tools and making it possible to build more like scalable testing infrastructure. So this year they introduced that you can more easily run uh, multiple UI tests and multiple tests like in different suites in different simulators, and that could potentially really speed up tests, especially when you have a lot of them right. I think that any team that adopts
1: testing like as a matter of practice in their in their workflow uh, eventually comes across the the problem that running tests take a lot of time, and yeah. you know you're going to have many thousands of these tests if you're if you're really adopting testing and uh, and that's a good thing, but nobody wants to wait. 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour or whatever it takes to to run a full test suite before they can merge a pull request or, or, you know, go home for, for the day or whatever. And so I, what I see this is, is a sign that more companies are actually doing this and telling Apple that it needs to be faster, which is, is like a good sign for the community that like at least this is slowly, but surely like more people are adopting testing, which is good.
0: Yeah, it's really great. And for me, I feel like there's been this like chicken and egg situation for a couple of years with testing, where there's been a bunch of people in the community who've really wanted to get into testing, like especially UI testing. I've heard from so many people as I've been doing my recent talk called the magic of UI testing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people have told me that, you know, we tried UI test a couple of years ago and it just didn't work. They were too slow. They were unstable and, you know, people get a little bit burnt by that and maybe Next time, they're not super excited about trying it. And now that Apple, they seem to be really putting a big focus on it and making it more scalable. Uh, I feel like that's going to hopefully get us out of this chicken and egg loop and actually enable people to uh, to use these tools in a way that works really well, even as you get a lot of them.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that it's, it's kind of interesting that like
0: you mentioned the chicken and egg thing,
1: it's also about like the tools getting better. Like there were people who, uh, would test if the tools were better, but then Apple might see like, well, people don't test, so we're not going to invest time in making the tools better. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see investment in this. I'm always, I'm always happy to see that. And, you know, I am always happy to see new things and challenges I can run at my iMac pro and
0: and see how fast (laughs) it can do. How many simulators can I run in parallel?
1: (laughs) Uh, I am a sucker for that. And, uh, you know, encoding video is like the the easiest uh, thing I can use to sort of rationalize that uh, that mm-hmm. machine is that I encode a lot of video and um, I, I use the uh, iStat menus that shows you the cores, um, the CPU cores, and and so when you when you do something like that, you can see it sort of spike up and
0: yeah. So, of course, we also need to talk about the new version of Swift and we got a new version of Swift in the Xcode 10 beta. This is something that we've seen being developed in the open, which is, you know, a really exciting part of Swift being open source is that we can now see these changes kind of, you know, come to life in the open source world. and they are also more and more, it feels like, influenced by our feedback as a community. So Swift 4.2, it uh, brings some really nice things to the table uh, that are focused on like minimizing boilerplate, really, and giving us a little bit more control as developers. So one really cool aspect of Swift 4.2, I think, is case iterable. And the fact that now we can declare that certain enums can be iterated over instead of having to implement that manually or use like, code generation or something like that. So Ben, have you ever had this, um, this use case in one of your apps that you need to iterate over enums? All the time. And yeah. I think all of us
1: probably at some point or other said I have like an all function that returns all of them. And
0: I think I've seen that for every single app I've worked on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and you know it's just one of those things that like, yeah, everybody needs something like this at some point. And the problem with an all method is that in the compiler cannot help you to enforce that you add the new ones to it, so it's it can lead to subtle bugs if you add an enum case and don't modify your your all function. So, so that's really good. It it sort of obviously doesn't work if your enums have associated values uh, because there would be no way for the the function to know what value to put uh, with that enum. So, uh, so it's it's more for like the the sort of enums that are just like markers uh, rather than like value containers.
0: Yeah, exactly, and. Usually, in my experience at least, those are the most valuable to kind of be able to iterate over because when you have like a result type or something like that or you're managing your state as an enum with associated values, it's not so often that you need to iterate over those. It's more like you are switching on them or performing some actions. Mm -hmm. But when you have things like... Different sections that you want to iterate over, or something like that, or different parts of a view that you are modeling using an enum with an int backing uh, value, an int raw value. I mean, those are going to be really, really nice to be able to uh, minimize that boilerplate, or and also makes it make it more safe to actually make sure that you're handling all the cases, like you also mentioned. Another another aspect of uh, making things more safe is that. Uh, there is now a new implementation of Hashable, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I, I actually haven't seen that before. And so I was kind of surprised by it. And now that instead of when you conform to Hashable, which you don't have to do manually so much anymore, but when you do, uh, you now get a hasher instead of actually just returning a single int value, which I think is really smart because writing a good hashing function yourself can be really tricky.
1: Yeah, it, I would say the the approach I've taken in Swift and other languages for this is um, all the system types that are hashable have a good hash implementation for them, you know, as far as I can tell. And so what I would ten- generally do is just like make a string that is like a comma separated list of all the unique properties. And then you rely on strings, hashable implementation. This is way more explicit about what we what you're doing. So I think that's a good thing It's they're probably just surfacing the, the internal type that they were already using.
0: Yeah, and also it's it's more efficient. It must be because instead of actually constructing a string and having to go through that, which should pretty much be linear time in order to hash that, uh, this should be at least in theory a lot more faster.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, the, and hashable implementations are something that are generally used in tight loops and sort of can be can be called over and over and over again uh, while they are being added and removed and accessed from a collection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So having that, like right now you get a hasher, like in Swift 4.2, and then you can just add more hash values to it, and it will automatically compute the final hash value for you, which I think is is really, really great. And of course, now when we also have the compiler synthesizing those things for us, there's uh, very little needs these days to write your own hashing function, which I think is good news. Uh, Another one of the headlining features in Swift 4.2 is that we can now implement our own uh, warnings and errors uh, at compile time. So there's the hashtag error and hashtag warning directive, as well as some other kind of more finely grained uh, compiler directives for whether you can import a certain module and whether you're running on the simulator, etc. Um, there is no macro support yet in Swift. Uh, what do you think about these things, Ben? Like, do you think they are covering most of the usages of macros or do you still feel like, why why don't they just add a proper macro support to Swift?
1: Uh yeah so the the macro thing is interesting because it it, it enabled in objective c it enabled a a fair bit of metaprogramming yeah absolutely uh, where you're writing code that writes code and so you're you're it's like almost like a you know influencing the compiler in subtle ways so that it produces the code that you want depending on a whole number of variables and there were some frameworks that used macros extensively like like um uh, reactive Cocoa, for instance uh relied heavily on macros and that that was a way to get the job done but it unfortunately is pretty hard to debug and it's hard to document and it's not necessarily part of the language you're writing in the macro language not in the, the actual language
0: yeah i mean at the end of the day it's like string replacement so it yeah so, the, so this
1: i feel like it's slippery slope like it, it can mm-hmm. do a lot but it's easy to abuse and i so i think this this covers a whole lot of like the basic things that we would need uh you know the i think the has target environment thing is welcome, because if you ever run uh, code on the Mac and a server, you can easily tell you know, your OS is is Mac or Linux. But it, it wasn't necessarily easy to see if you're running on a simulator. You would have to check the processor architectures and also make sure that you're not on... Uh, I'm forgetting the, the direct incantation, but there was multiple checks you would have to make to see if you're running on a simulator, and now that's just one call. So that, that stuff is nice. I, I also like adding uh, warnings uh, for things that we need to address because it will show up in the issue navigator and things like that. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, and if you have template code, uh, for instance, that you want to distribute or maybe you have like an Xcode project template that like spits out like a, you know, some some stuff here, some, some files in organized fashion, but you need to provide your API key or whatever, uh, then having an error right there can show you, be like, okay, you need to add, you need to replace this one section. Uh, you know, it makes
0: a lot of sense. And I, I really like both the uh, the changes that were made, I think last year, which uh, was related to like what OS version is available. So the, uh, you know, if hashtag available and things like that, It's it becomes more about like more finely grained feature detection rather than always making an assumption that just because I'm running on the Mac, I always have these features, which, you know, as we've seen this year, is about to be disrupted because soon we're going to have UIKit kit on the mac so it won't necessarily be that just because you're on ios that's the only platform that has UIKit. kit all right cool so another feature or another suite of apis that were introduced in the what's new and swift presentation was uh, a whole bunch of functions and APIs related to uh, random number generation or picking random elements from a collection. So this is, again, something just like, I guess, case iterable that you usually have some form of use for in an app. And now having like a kind of go-to API for random generation I think is really, really nice. What do you think, Ben?
1: I think this is really nice that we can sort of rely on something a little more swifty than the arc for random uniform, which seems just like an archaic implementation that uh, doesn't, uh, like none of those words really make sense except for random yeah. <laughs> to most people. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and then once you do that, every random number generator is different. So in every platform, you're like, oh, this gives you a floating point value from zero to one, and you have to multiply that by your your value and then, and then floor it if you want an int. Or some of them only give you an int between zero and the max value you provide. And, and, uh, and so there's just a bunch of, um, and, and in Arc4 random uniform, you can mod that. And so that gives you like a huge number and you mod that to your max number. And so there's all these like different ways of using these. And I think having like a robust descriptive API for, for saying, I want a random float, so use the float one. I want a random int, so I'm going to use the int one. And it's very clear what uh, the range of values is going to be. So you don't really have to worry about modulus and, uh, and you know, multiplying or anything like that. It's, I think it's a lot more explicit. And I think that the bool bool.random or whatever is super awesome. I think stuff like that, the syntactic, syntactic sugar that sort of expresses your intent way more clearly than random value between 0 and 1 equal equal 1 uh, just to get like a flip-flopping random. Uh, I think that's really cool. There's one other thing that I wanted to to talk about that I thought was really interesting in 4.2, dot mm-hmm. uh, which is the dynamic member lookup, and uh, that one I I didn't see this coming. I don't you know to be honest, I don't read a lot of the the uh, Swift evolution uh, proposals because it's kind of uh, overwhelming sometimes. Uh, but this one was really cool. It it allows Swift to uh, essentially the surface area is you add an attribute to your class that is a dynamic member lookup. And then that forces you to add a, uh, like essentially a subscript method that takes in a string key, and you can return whatever type you want. And, uh, and you can provide multiple of those. And so essentially, if you had like a dictionary-backed resource, then you could provide what essentially looks like a Swift object on the outside. Uh, you could say person.firstName. But that first name isn't actually a method or a property on the class. It goes through the dynamic member lookup. You can pull that out of a dictionary and return it. And uh, where that is useful is when you're trying to bridge to dynamic languages. So if yeah. you're trying to uh, leverage, say, a um, scientific computing algorithm that's uh, or library that's in Python, you could um, create a bridge, essentially, uh, that says, okay... I, Hey Python interpreter, I want you to create this object. And hey Python interpreter, I want you to like get this member of this object. And essentially, those are just like calling functions that have string names for the function, and uh, and then the value comes back is usually an any, and you have to sort of cast it as something. Uh, this this is going to give you the type safety when you're calling that API, uh, and and allow you to treat it like it's a Swift object. And and under the hood, it's going to do this sort of dynamic lookup of that thing anyway. Uh, and so I, I think that that's really really an interesting API that sort of feels at home in at Swift uh, in Swift and and I think that it's going to enable uh, you know a whole lot of sort of bridging to dynamic languages and a, a side benefit to this uh, is that uh, if you're doing like JSON uh, what do you call it uh, like JSON parsing some of yeah. the libraries will will have uh, an API where you can essentially index multiple times. So if you're trying to like uh, say like contact.address.line1, you would do that as like a dictionary access repeatedly. So it would be like bracket, quote, address, close, quote, close, bracket, open, bracket, open, quote, right? So you just sort of repeatedly access a dictionary. And then there's have to be question marks in there because each one of those could return optionals. So it's a little clunky. And uh, if you if you adopted this dynamic lookup, you could essentially have your backing data be a dictionary that returns uh, the returns another type like this. So you could essentially have this dot, you know, chaining dot syntax that has the exact same effect. And uh, so I think it can sort of clean up a whole lot of code in that area. And I'm sure that uh, there's some, you know, third-party JSON libraries that, that sort of have this design. Uh, I'm sure they're going to adopt something like this.
0: Yeah, for sure. And another area where this becomes really useful is if you're building some kind of view into a database, like an ORM or something like that, where you could, you know, have your uh, properties be backed directly by the database. You could look that up dynamically, and it just like it makes Swift a more dynamic language while still being very type safe and statically checked, which I think is awesome. And it's really great to see these more like also writable. Um, Reflection features because we've had the mirror API since like day one pretty much, but now we're also getting these more dynamic features that enable you to both read and write and you can do more, uh, more dynamic programming without losing what makes Swift so good.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I'm really excited about all the dynamic features to add on to Swift.
0: All right, so I think that's all of the new cool features that we have time to talk about on this episode. I know that there are some key ones that we need to get back to on future episodes, like the new ML Create features in Xcode Playgrounds and all the new cool APIs in ARKit. So we will definitely talk more about these WWDC announcements on future episodes as well. All right. But before we wrap up, I know, Ben, that you have a really nice and generous offer for everyone listening to this show who wants to go ahead and subscribe to NS Screencast, which I really, really recommend because you are putting out some really awesome new screencasts and videos all the time. So tell us, Ben, what's the offer?
1: So I have a coupon code for your listeners to get uh, 30% off the first three months of a subscription to NS Screencast. And uh, if you're interested in that, go check it out at nsscreencast.com slash r slash sundellwwdc18. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes as well yeah. so
0: you can go there easily. Yeah.
1: I did put a bit.ly link as well, so if that's easier to remember, it's bit.ly slash WWDC 18 And that will uh, activate a coupon,
0: and uh, hopefully you can check it out and uh, you know let me know what you think that's awesome. That's really cool. So 30% off your first three months of NS Screencast. I think that's a really great offer. So thanks a lot for that, Ben. I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to find that really, really interesting. Um, So we've now reached the end of this show. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Ben, for joining me on this special WWDC episode.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, lots of fun, and uh, it's always so great to nerd into these like new announcements. This feels like Christmas, and there's so many new cool stuff to look into. So uh, apart from NS Screencast, you know, with the offer, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well, uh, where can people find you on Twitter, etc.? Uh,
1: I go by the handle SubDigital on Twitter and GitHub, and you can find me at my blog at bensherman.com. That's uh, B-E-N-S-C-H-E-I-R-M-A-N.com. And uh yeah, I, I hang out on Twitter a fair bit and
0: I blog, you know, at least once a year. <laughs> <laughs> at least once a year. That's a good pace. At least you're consistent, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. All right, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. You can find everything about this show and about the weekly blog post that I write at swiftbysundell.com. You can find the show notes uh, for this episode with all the links and everything at dot com slash podcast slash twenty-five. Uh, Thanks a lot again to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out. Also a link in the show notes for that. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.